if I imagine that you'll reject me, so I hide this part of myself from you, and then you love me, but only for the part that I've shown you, I know that you're not actually accepting all of me. So I continue to feel rejected. Until you risk being seen, you will not know being loved. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. Hey there, it's me, Brinsky, and I am here today doing a takeover on That Sex Chick. And I have the pleasure of interviewing a dear friend, a mentor, an experienced teacher, writer, speaker, Rainier Wild. And I first met Rainier via Instagram. And I just, I'd fallen in love with his words and the way that he writes about sex, love, intimacy, vulnerability. And he really has just embraced life in such a poetic way. And I thought that it would be so special to have him come on the show and to talk about sex and love from a different angle, from more of this poetic and creative side, artistic side. And Rainier is such a dynamic person. He's managed Fortune 500 companies, built businesses, elegantly blown them up, burned them down. And he holds a master's degree in psychology. And he's spent countless hours working with men and women, helping them navigate being human and the parts of falling in love and ending love and being vulnerable. And he's just such a wealth of knowledge. And he really is such an inspiration to live life fully and authentically. And that's what I really respect most about him. And so on today's show, it's probably different than what you're used to here, but I encourage you to be open and to listen through a new lens. We're diving into things like shadow work, relationships, uh, what it means to heal codependency, uh, infidelity, and how to have sex as a creative lover. And what all of that entails and so much more. So I hope that you enjoy the show and I can't wait for you to listen. Joining me on today's show, I have a dear friend, mentor, um, someone who I've admired from afar for his way with words and the way that you approach your life, the way that you lead so open-heartedly and authentically. I think that I was so intrigued to have you on the show because it's different. The way that you speak about love and sex and relationships, it just pings this part of me that makes me want to know more and to give me permission to be more human. And um, I just can't wait to have this conversation today. I think it'll be so unique and I'm just so grateful to have you on the show. So Rainier, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me on. And again, I've really been so excited actually to have this opportunity to be on the show and then really just to get to speak to you um, since I first heard about it. And, you know, I think earlier as we were kind of talking and then just hearing those words again uh, by way of your introduction, you know, I'm always mindful of William Blake's uh, wonderful quote, the poet from the English romantic period of time. And 
He said the, the path of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And at least in my own life, that's been true. Like if I have anything to say, if I have anything to share about love or life or romance or relationship, it's just because I failed a hell of a lot. And oftentimes I've lassoed a boulder and pulled it onto my own head. And if I can claim anything, it's that I hope I've just paid attention um, and have become a faithful chronicler of the human experience. Um, that's my goal in all of these things, whether I'm writing or teaching. I want to live it and drink it and, and imbibe as deeply as I can and then share that with others. Mm. Um, so it's really exciting to hear that that's what's connected to you too. Yes, uh, you're doing it. Your goal is being accomplished. So, and I will keep reminding you of that. And <laughs> I am so curious to hear and to take our listeners on the journey of how did you become outside of like, what did your life experience look like that allowed you to become a teacher and an author on all things love? You know, I, I don't think it occurred to me that I was profoundly interested in teaching about love. If anything, I was sort of raised within a path and a tradition where the focus was on, on spirituality and God, and then later psychology and and probing the depths of the human mind. I think it was only much later as I began to overturn the soil of my own experience that I sort of realized I had sold my soul to both God and sex a long time ago. And I've talked about this before. I mean, people get real uncomfortable, at least in a lot of the circles I travel. When I start talking about that, you know, it's like, well, God's fine and psychology is okay, but sex, God, why would we talk about that? Well, they're all intertwined, aren't they? I mean, I think the most, the most powerful moments of my life have probably been boiled down to a few moments of orgasm where I simply stopped existing, mm. right? And, and, and that's why the French have called it le petite mort, right? The little death. And that little death, at least for men, I think matters an awful lot. For one moment in our precious and small life, we stop. We stop longing. We stop regretting, at least for a few minutes, right? And we're just there inhabiting the present moment. I can remember actually a moment only a couple of years ago when I was just in the throes of ecstasy with my partner and I actually thought I was beginning to die. That, that isn't a, a joke. I, I had this moment where I thought, Oh God, I'm, I'm about to have a heart attack. Um, I can feel like the blood going all the way up to my head. If I'm not having a heart attack, I'm having an aneurysm. If I'm not having an aneurysm, I'm having some mild stroke. This is it. This is it. And what happened in that moment was not, you know, a terrified grasping to hold on to life. I actually let go. I had this beautiful moment where I realized what an amazing way to go out. Like what an amazing, orgiastic, explosive way to see an end. If I end that way, I will be so happy. But going back to your real question, you know, like, how did I kind of realize I wanted to talk about love? Well, I just think it's consumed so much of my time, right? Like in the scope of my life, I, I've, I've been married two times, totaling over half of my life. I've, I, since I started dating at 17, I've been connected to um, one partner or another in various successions. I've 
seen numerous couples as a professional. I've worked with people. And what I found is that sex and relationships seem to be the backstop, not only of my life, but of the life of so many others. And, you know, if, if you don't have to look at the whole, you can really just look at a single pinpoint to see everything, right? So I don't have to look at geopolitics. I don't have to look at the biosphere. I don't have to look at at the complex relationship between, you know, Russia and the United States to understand the world. Like I can actually just look at how you and I, or how my partner and I, or how myself and, and a lover might interact. And all of the scope of human experience can be boiled down to that encounter. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. And, and really when I'm talking about love or sex, I might as well be talking about geopolitics because right? the same rules apply. Oh, that's such a, a powerful connection. And I think it was actually John Wineland who for the first time connected those dots for me, that where you collapse the patterns you have in the bedroom are universal patterns. And the second I started to take a look at that within myself, I it, it opened everything for me. It was like, oh gosh, I can't allow this person to fully see and receive me. I'm addicted to perfectionism. And how is that playing in the bedroom and therefore with this lover and everywhere else in my life? And so I love that you not only made that connection in your life, but universally, right? Yeah. You know, that, that right there, what you just said about your own patterns, you can, you can just take that, how a person is, how they they live in those glorious two minutes to two hours, whatever that is, or simply how they relate, you know, the dynamic of, of what they're like when they first meet a person, the, the gift of illusions that they give, the stages of romance they progress through. These are really how they conduct their daily affairs over mm. and over and over. And, um, and I find that dramatically interesting. Isn't it? Human beings are fascinating. To be a human is fascinating. And I think that so much of what I love about your writing is you take the human experience and you make it tangible. Like I understand my experience through your writing. And in prepping for this interview, I was reading through a lot of your work again. And you said this phrase that was so interesting to me. And I want to, I want to start with sex here. Like I want to lead with sex because we're a sex show. And I know you are going to be great to talk about this, but the quote was creative lovers have more sex. And I'd love for you to dive deeper into what it means to be a creative lover and what that looks like in your life and how one can become a more creative lover. Oh, well, thank you. I, I so rarely actually get to talk about this topic publicly. Nobody seems to really want to talk about this with me. So this is fantastic. <laughs> this is why I was so excited to come on this show. Um, you know, the, the reality is that creativity is so ill-defined in our culture that we tend to think that it only belongs to artists, musicians, poets, um, when in reality, you can be a, a tremendously creative used car salesman. Creativity, if we understood it properly, if we rightly defined it, would be the synthesis of authenticity, my ability to show up and know that all of my experience belongs, that all of my feelings are data, and I simply listen to them as they occur. 
authenticity that, that my thoughts, my feelings, and my experiences have value and worth to not only be ex- experienced internally, but expressed externally. So authenticity, experiment, my ability to take a risk, to try something different, to, to um, launch out, take a leap. And then lastly, imagination, simply my willingness to consider possibilities that I hadn't previously. Those three things, authenticity, experiment, and imagination form the equation of what creativity is. And what I've found inevitably, whether it's in used car salesmanship or being someone in the boardroom or the bedroom, is that people who bring their whole self to the game are willing to consider new possibilities that they previously hadn't and then are able to take that and take a leap, a risk, a chance are the people who consistently state that they are happier. Mm. And my belief, my fundamental belief is that when I am happier, when I am living in that state of whether you call it flow or, or simply inhabiting my sense of self, that the people around me are more comfortable also. So if I'm with a lover and she feels that I'm locked up, it, it, my partner feels that I'm, I'm tense. I'm, you know what's interesting? She becomes tense. She shuts down. I, I just had this conversation actually with my my uh, partner Christy not too long ago. We were talking, and and she was being very reactive or at least responsive to my own emotional state. Now I could sit there and I could complain, and I could be like, "Oh, wah, wah, wah. like you should you should change so that I can change." It. By the way, that's that's often what we do. We want someone to to do the thing for us that we're not doing for ourselves. Right. I want her to be excitable and, and vibrant because I'm not feeling very excitable or vibrant. Or I can own that experience, recognize that I'm shut down, recognize that my emotions are at a low ebb. I become authentic with myself, descriptive of that with her, and then begin to imagine new possibilities, which is exactly what I did with her. And so, uh, you know, in that moment, feeling shut down, I decided that I would step into a new mode of being in that moment. I took her, I put my left arm behind her lower back. I took my right arm behind her neck and I kissed her passionately. Mm. Right. That moment changed effectively, not just for me, but for her and relationally creative lovers have more sex quite simply because you're willing to consider new possibilities over and over and over. I think the opposite of that is to be uncreative. And what does that mean? It's to be inauthentic with self. It's to cut away parts of myself, to deny parts of myself. God, I've lived there. You know, I've lived there in the basement of my shadows where all the things I was really terrified would take me out of relationship got hidden. Mm. You know, when we're living inauthentically, that really means that we're terrified to show up. And whether that's because the things we want, we fear the other person won't, or whether that's because the, the things that we've done, we're afraid we'll be judged for. Whatever those things are, we cut and hide and minimize and avoid. And it's so easy to do. Mm. And I think the opposite of a creative life, whether that's romantically or sexually or vocationally, is an inauthentic life. It's a life where we're playing very small, very afraid. Um, We can't take risks. You know, in relationships, if I could just 
continue this thought in relationships. One of the things I see happening so often is a demand for safety, this relentless demand for safety. I think that's important. We want to feel safe. We want to, but you know, I've also noticed that this partially borders on control. This idea that, that the world should be safe. You know, I've got to be honest that the world isn't a very safe place. The world is incredibly risky. I am able to face the riskiness of the world if I experience inner security. And so one of the things that's happening, I think, dynamically in relationships, and we see it all over today, is that the demand for safety is so loud because the reality of inner security is so small. Mm. And so we need women and men who would begin to discover those parts of themselves, that deep inner reservoir of security. And that then translates in the ability to take risks, to step out on a limb, to say, hey, you, um, I've been thinking about you for a while and God, I think you're amazing. Can we talk more? Or whatever that is, you know, we're able to step out on those limbs if we have that inner security. Ooh, there's so many things that I want to double click and zoom in on. Um, I loved getting to hear that. And I loved your definition of creativity really being about authenticity. Because at first you could read that phrase and think being a more creative lover means I have to swing from the chandeliers and have the sex toy and like all of these other possibilities. And well, that's a part of it, right? A lot of it is just bringing all parts of you to the table and being more authentic in your expression. And in that authenticity, um, all things are possible. And you, you touched on something that I want to go back to where you named that this part of us, right? Like when we're bringing all parts of us to a relationship, that means the dark shadowy bits too. And when we withhold those things, we can literally feel a block. We may not be able to, to name it, but us women and men too, like we are intuitive, sensitive beings once we understand how to cultivate that sensitivity again. And so even if we can't always name it, we can feel there's something between us that's keeping us from having a deeper sexual, more connected experience. And so I'd love to talk about the shadow and how that plays a role in real vulnerability and real intimacy and how one can start to take a look at what's there. And also how does that play a role in, in having the love that you really want? Mm, wow. What a great, what an incredibly great um, question here. You know, I, I think that the shadow rightly understood is really just the counterpart to the persona. We build our personalities out of the very best parts of ourselves, out of the things that we know people will see as desirable. And really, if you think about it, you know, we're not experiencing today, you and I as grown adults, we're not experiencing the world as we see. We're not building conclusions about the world we're experiencing currently. The truth is we already concluded things about the world, like in third and fourth grade, we looked out at the world and we had some thoughts and people supplied some information and we got real excited about it and we made some conclusions. And ultimately we've been playing out those conclusions of a third or fourth grader for our whole life. And a lot of the things that we built our personalities around 
when we were, you know, in elementary school were the things we thought would bring us into, into close alignment with the people around us. Unfortunately, it rarely did that. It instead took so many parts of ourself and, and put them in the, the basement. It put them in the places of, of hiddenness where we couldn't be seen. Those parts couldn't be seen, couldn't be observed. And that's where things become incredibly problematic because over time, that basement grows. As, as high as the skyscraper of our personality is built up, the basement grows large too. And all the things that we can't be honest about go there. That's certainly been true in my life. You know, I learned to keep secrets very, very early on. That was one of the things growing up in a very religious environment. And really, societally, I think that's fairly normal. But, but truthfully, I learned how to keep secrets very excellently, very adept. Anything that would take me out of relationship, I had a secret for. And especially with sexuality. I, I remember being about five years old, my hand buried in my pants and my mother, um, you know, being scandalized by this. And, and of course, you know, it's so funny. I, I hear this from parents still all the time. Like, how do I, how do I get little Billy or little Susie to stop playing with themselves? My God, you know, like we're so offended by the human experience in general. And of course, society is dedicated to the repression of the human experience in general. So we develop these things and then we hide. We begin to skulk in our shame basements. And that's where those secrets and learning to keep those secrets comes into play. If you can think about it, the vault of secrets is there. It's a built-in place that we know exists. And if something doesn't fit in the conversation, if something doesn't quite align, well, I just won't say it. I'll withhold or I'll say a half truth, or I might even just go ahead and tell a real whopper, tell an untruth altogether. Well, this is all kind of shadow formation work. I remember after I divorced my first wife and was beginning to date again, and um, the woman who would become my, my current wife and I were talking. And she sat down, you know, she's a marriage and family therapist. She knew a lot of questions to ask. But funny thing is, we didn't really ask questions of each other. It was like, we didn't ask, you know, well, why'd you get divorced in the first place? And so I didn't really have to tell her, well, it was because I was unfaithful. And I didn't really ask her about her sex life, even though she was pregnant at the time with her ex-lover's child. God, she could have been the blessed Virgin Mary, you know, for all I knew. It was like the immaculate conception. We just didn't talk about these things. And we didn't talk about them because we didn't really want to know. The illusion was so delightful. And that's how shadows are created because we're so addicted to the persona. We're so addicted to the delightful set of illusions. We don't want to know the truth. And we certainly don't want others to know the truth. So in my life, those things got buried. But you know, the behaviors, they were still there. They were still there. And I was able to continue to to explore my own, my own inner recesses, but they're in the vault of secrets. And when anything didn't fit, well, again, I just put it there. So at first it was little withholdings, like why did you get divorced? Which might not be such a little withholding. <laughs> uh, but then it became larger, like I'm going out with so-and-so tonight. And then it became even larger, like, oh, I slept with someone else. It became even larger, like, oh, I, uh, that's happened a few times. Right. Over time, these things simply had a place to go. 
that's how a lot of relationships are. We condition relationships to imagine that our secrets belong. And the more secrecy that we maintain, the more we have a place to put those things that we think will take us out of relating until you get caught. Mm. And you have to stare into each other's eyes and go, you are not the person I thought you were. In fact, there was a whole other life that was developed that happened for us. You know, I'll never forget. And I've talked about this very publicly at times, but I'll never forget that moment coming home and uh, a uh, affair that I had had um, was becoming public. It was with a coworker and had led to a very toxic environment. And all of a sudden, all of this was coming forward. And here I was having to deal with these issues. And I could have kept lying. I mean, the, the, the truth is I, I really could have. That was an option in my mind. And as I was driving home, I, I thought to myself, well, okay, option A, door A, lie, lie, lie. Um, but I've been doing that. I felt so tired of running. I felt so tired of running from myself when I came home. And then as we began to drive to the destination where we would talk and there on the beach, I, I told her that I had an affair. Now, the funny thing is I, I just talked about one of them. Like I wasn't quite ready to talk about all of them. I wasn't quite ready to talk about the character that I had become, which was like a character in someone else's bad novel but I was willing to put my foot in the water. Now she was smart. She asked all the right questions. You know, she, as you said, intuitive and knew there was so much more. And so it all began to come out. It all began to unfold. And probably over the course of the next year to two years, uh, all that truth came out in trickles until we were left there acknowledging something. And that's why I said a few moments ago, I don't know you. Now, on her side, something interesting was happening at the same time. She would say, as much as I had um, obscured my experiences, for a long time, she had been obscuring her thoughts and her feelings. We were both lying. We were both conducting these castles and kingdoms in the sky to preserve the relationship. You know, there's a kind of beauty to that. Shadows, actually, if, if we understand lies in a certain way, it's well, this is really valuable and we're not quite ready to expose it to the brutalness of truth. But then we were. Now, the amazing thing is we had a choice to make and that choice was very simple for us. Will we abandon this project or will we recognize for the first time now we can do the real work because the lights are on? And, and that makes all the difference in the world. When the lights are on, you can move around the furniture finally before you're just bumping into it and falling all over each other and doing this. But now the lights are on. Mm. So this is really, I think, the, the trajectory of shadows. We're all creating shadows, whether it's our experiences or our thoughts or our feelings. But at some point in time, life will offer us the opportunity to address those. Mm. Will we? Yeah. Y'all, I have a confession. I'm a bona fide biohacking broski. I want you to know ski. Mm -hmm. That's funny. What is biohacking? So biohacking is hacking the system of one's biology, the art and science of doing so to become the most badass, amazing, awesome version of myself. I hear the word optimization. In ah, there. yes. Yes. And mm -hmm. so as your partner, 
as the partner to a biohacking broski, I've seen Jordan do so many different weird ass things Mm -hmm. from getting into water filled with ice and then jumping into a hot box and sweating it out (laughs) to sitting on the couch with a contraption on his head that shows different lights over his eyes and plays different binaural beats in his ears. Um, I know everything from sunnier testicles outside (laughs) and just all kinds of interesting things that help you hijack the system and be a better version of yourself. And there's one thing that every single freaking day I experience you do that is in the biohacking space. And that has been no less than 40 minutes making your coffee every morning. Yeah, I biohack the shit ski out of my coffee. So, and I, this is the foundation really of my biohacking practice. I've been doing it for almost a decade now. And so my coffee's on steroids. I, it's my breakfast. I put all kinds of stuff in it. It's very calorically dense, all kinds of healthy fats, MCT oil, grass-fed butter, uh, cacao powder, collagen protein, mushroom adaptogen extracts, turmeric, you name it. Mm. And when we first got together, I was also doing, I would say a version of that with my coffee. And I did it for a while. And I really enjoyed the way that my brain and my body felt. And then eventually, as many of y'all know, I've spoken about it on the shows that I've been dealing with some gut challenges and healing holistically. Um, I also have spoken about on the show that I struggle with anxiety, sometimes way more than others. And so as time has gone by, I've been trying to keep up with Jordan and his biohackiness and his <laughs> supercharged coffees in the morning. And we've just realized that that's probably not serving me at this stage in life. And, but the thing is, I love coffee, like love, love, love coffee. I love something warm in the morning. I love the feeling. And, um, I, dare I say, I have anxiety about my coffee and then I wind up having more anxiety if I don't have it. And then I have even more anxiety if I do have it. And so my questions to myself are like, how do I support my gut, my brain, my body, and lessening stress and cortisol in my system, how can I still do that um, in a way that is healthy and supportive to me? So Yeah. So we recently started using something called Dose. Mm-hmm. And it's a powder that has like a small amount of coffee in it. It's got lion's mane, chaga, collagen, uh, sun theanine, and just a bunch of stuff that does the things you just described. Exactly. And so you are putting a lot of those extracts in your coffee already, plus the fats and all of that. And so Mm. I've now found at Everyday Dose, their mushroom latte is a way for me to get a lot of those adaptogens and nootropics in the form of a warm drink that feels a lot like my morning Mm. coffee. Of course, it has a little bit of a different taste. It's kind of like light coffee with like a kind of chocolatey flavor to it. Mm. And I froth milk and I put it in there. And so that's what I'm having to support my system that's a little bit different. So I can still be a biohacking babe. Come on. But not like a strung out (laughs) biohacking babe. (laughs) And alternatively, on the flip side of this, Jordan, we have everyday dose and he adds that shit to his coffee. To everything I already do. So it's like I double down on it because I metabolize coffee really well. And a lot of people do and a lot of people don't. And so you and I really represent two very distinct populations of sorts, people that are sensitive to coffee and people that like do coffee very well. And so this works in both those scenarios. I'm a big fan. For sure. And I think a lot of people drink coffee regardless, because it's such a ritual in the morning. Totally. And it's very meditative every mm. morning. But I think that studies have shown that about half of the people that drink coffee are sensitive to it. Yeah. And mess with their sleep, gut, um, anxiety, a lot of those things you're talking about. Absolutely. And we're starting to think that I might be in that category. So yeah. anything that we can do that supports me being in flow, being chill, 
all that. Um, and feeling like my best self, like I have access to my best self and I can regulate my nervous system. Then we're going to be doing that. And I know for Jordan, he's got limitless energy and he looks like a Greek God. (laughs) And so for him, he adds that shit and, and it works for him. So um, we've recently partnered with Everyday Dose, mm-hmm. which is super cool. And so for all of you who might want to give it a try, everydaydose.com, the code that sex chick, you'll get 20% off of anything that you order. And but they also have these really cool starter kits that have this like cool canister. Um, and it has like this cool spoon and a cool cup. And the starter kits are already discounted. Add that sex chick on top of it and you get an extra discount. So you'd wind up with, I think, like 55% off of your first order. Um, and something else that I, I'll mention here is that this is a, a mushroom elixir that doesn't taste like dirt. Yeah. I love it. It's so tasty. So, um, and of course there are recipes on their site where you can add other things to make them so, so much more flavorful um, and robust and, um, and unique to you. So again, everydaydose.com code mm-hmm. that sex chick. If you want to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And last thing I'll say is the branding is cool. Just like the oh, company yeah. is cool. Dose it stands cool. for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and the last one, endorphins. Endorphins. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Check them out, y'all. Give it a try. That last piece gave me goosebumps that life will present you the opportunity because fuck, if that's not the truth. And I love that you named it was like after this exposure, like your shit came out of the basement. Hers came out of the basement. And I also love that you named that you were both essentially hiding things just in different capacities. And one is not worse or better than the other. Cause I relate to that so deeply. I remember there was an exercise that my mentor gave me as my ex and I were uncoupling. It was, we were in the thick of the, the sadness, the grief. And she said, you're going to do something called holding the bucket. He is going to sit in front of you and your only job is to receive his words with an open heart. So your hands are going to be on your legs, sitting upright, and he's going to let it all go. I mean, as if it was the biggest word vomit of his life. And it, it brings tears to my eyes, even thinking about this because he unlocked 10 years, Rainier, 10 years of inner resentments, withholds, shadows in one hour. And I sat there and I remember the exact phrase that you uttered was, holy shit, I don't even know this person. And it was the most like cataclysmic internal um, collapse of how could I have been married to somebody for 10 years and have not known these things? And then after that was the sadness, like, God, I'm so sorry that you felt like you couldn't share that with me and that I probably couldn't have held it even if you had shared it with me. And the next night we repeated the exercise. I went this time and I unlocked all of my resentments and withholds. And then as you would have it, the next night we had the best sex of our 10-year relationship. (laughs) And I don't think that that's a coincidence. No, because you truly saw each other. Yes, for the first time. And it's magic. And it's the most terrifying and exhilarating and thrilling thing to let all parts of you be seen, right? I think that's such a theme of what you've been sharing is what does it actually look like to bring all of you to a relationship? And there was something, another quote that you had shared in one of your pieces that said, 
there isn't anything more sacred than to offer up the fragile and broken pieces of your heart to another. Mm. And I loved that, right? Because to me, vulnerability is here is my heart on a silver tray, all of the parts of me, it's goopy, it's messy, it's fun, it's playful, it's everything. And I'm delivering it to you on a tray and you can say, no, thank you. You could say, this isn't for me. And fuck, if that isn't the most intense experience of being a human. And so I'd love to hear like what your definition of vulnerability is and how does it play a role in your current relationship? Where does one begin on this path to vulnerability? Um, I wrote that piece that you're talking about uh, after I had shared something particularly vulnerable with my own partner. Um, it wasn't something that I had meant to lie about. Sometimes we withhold truths so long that we forget they're even there. We still have a responsibility to share them once we remember them. <laughs> and um, it, it came time for me to do that. It had come up for me. I suddenly remembered, oh my God, I hadn't shared this, this part of myself. So I did. And uh, Christy was quite sad, actually. It really took her off guard. And I realized in that moment, Yet again, there were no guarantees, right? This was a part of me. This was a part of myself. And just think about that. You know, I, I think there's something about this world that demands delirium. Like we exist in such unavailability. Just even the two-dimensional screens and the emojicons instead of like uncovered faces. Uh, like we have digital blips that stand in for dollars and, you know, work that's housed at home, but we say we're going to the office. And I, I think it all taxes the heart, right? That we have to live in these highly masked, highly covered over Disney lives, right? Festivals and holy days and weddings and that we're kind of rather terrified to live in the marriage. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to live in the wedding. It's the marriage that counts. And I think that our heart knows all that can be false. We grow really weary. We grow really faint. And that's the gift of vulnerability because it's an invitation to become soft again. And you start to listen to the rhythms of longing. You start to hear your own breath again in those moments, your own heartbeat. You know, I, I would just like to say, you said, you know, how can someone become vulnerable again? There's no how. You just step into it. It always feels right before you do like there's a sock that's been stuffed in your mouth and you're going to have to spit it out in order to say anything. Those might be words like, we need to talk. Those might be words like, I want a divorce. Those might be words like, um, I want to cross the finish line with you. I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. Whatever those words are, there's a tremendous risk to be seen in those moments. We, we spend so much of our time trying to fortify ourselves against the possibility that we'll be rejected, right? So, you know, I remember being a 16-year-old kid and telling my parents something really smart for a 16-year-old kid. I said, now, guys, I'm going to tell you something. But before I tell you, I want you to commit that you will not punish me. 
under any circumstances, else I will not tell you what I'm about to tell you. Uh, they went for it. It's so crazy. I, I, I have a 16 year old today. I would not buy that. That is not what I would do. Um, I'm still pondering what I would do. And if he's listening to this, he shouldn't be. But, uh, but the thing is, I think we kind of do that a lot. We say like, I'm about to tell you something, but uh, let's make sure that we're married and have three children first and that you can't leave me. Or let's make sure that, you know, I'm only going to tell you part of it because if I do, right, we're always hedging our bets. The truth is we will feel rejected for the things we do not offer the other person. Uh, Let me explain that. If I imagine that you'll reject me, so I hide this part of myself from you. And then you love me, but only for the part that I've shown you. I know that you're not actually accepting all of me. Mm. So I continue to feel rejected. So until I take that courageous first step of simply opening my mouth and speaking it, like I did all those years ago where I said, you should know I've had an affair. (laughs) And then later, you should know it wasn't just one. Mm. You should know, right? Now, in each of those moments, and even talking about them now brings me a tremendous amount of pain because those were painful places for her, for, for me. But, but the pain, of course, was the potentiality of loss, mm. that it could all unwind. Listen, you have to take that risk. You have to be willing to step into that place. Otherwise, there's no potential of being loved. Until you risk being seen, you will not know being loved. My whole body is just being lit up with goosebumps of, I mean, I imagine this is exactly the point I'm I'm at in my journey of like, I want true love. I want the full, like head over heels, heart pounding, sick about it the greatest risk and the greatest reward. And I think that's exactly what you just touched on is to deliver all of that to another human is the greatest risk, right? You are putting all of yourself out there, but fuck, we haven't talked about the reward of when someone says, oh, that, that's okay. I, I love you even more now. And I'm going to hold you in that experience. And if that's not the most delicious shit in the whole world, I don't know what is. And yeah, it's just, it's unlike anything else, but you can't experience that until you say, here is all of me, all of it. Yeah. You know, I, I spent, um, quite a few years being a singer songwriter and, uh, I was constantly accused as a singer songwriter of writing the saddest of songs. And my mother was, you know, my strongest critic. She has this high-pitched Southern voice and she would call and leave messages and say, I just heard your latest song. Why are, why are all your songs all so sad? Um, I had a bandmate at one point say, I think you'd be a lot happier if you just went down to Mexico for three months. Um, and it was probably all true. I don't think the songs were sad. I think they were all complicated. Love was complex. Even my love songs were half-hearted. I was half terrified of being hurt, half terrified of not being seen and 
And then I was also offering myself to be seen. I mean, all the complicated drama of it all. It wasn't so much sad as much as it was half. It was partial. Mm. I realized this the other day when I wrote an open love letter um, to, to my partner. And um, can I read that love letter? Would that be okay? I would love that, please. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to read the open love letter and then I'm going to read her private response to me. If mm. she, I don't think will mind on this, but, but I think it, it tells of what is possible once you open up your heart mm. and step into vulnerability. Here's what I said. I said, be the sweat upon my forehead, the sweetness upon my lips, be the blessed virgin, be the holy mother, be the sacred whore, be the fire, the wind, the rain, be the drought, Aphrodite, Athena, Lilith, and Eve. Be whatever you like, however you like it. Take the shape you wish. You do not need my permission. I take you as you are. Lay upon me like the frost and wrap around me like the mist. I want to feel you under my skin and watch you unfold as my breath. I don't want to wonder if there's any distance between us or be left guessing at what you feel or if your heart is beating close to mine, where it is subtle, there it is false. Use every word in every heathen tongue to signify this love. Leave nothing out. If there's something in the way, speak it, break it, dissolve it. Don't stop until the blood and sweat and heat ripple with clarity and resolve. Let me gasp as your lips clasp onto mine and travel the regions of my neck, the length of my body. Do not contain yourself. Love is not scarce and will refill what has already been poured out. Glide over me. Cut me apart. Piece me back together. Assault my senses. Overwhelm me where I stand. Force me to the floor. I wouldn't stop you. I cannot quell your endless sea. And I'll take your sunny days the drunken wine and the spinning through the clouds of joy. I'll take your crashing waves where you can't see straight for the pain. When you've been pulled under by despair, I'll take you on any shore you set upon. If you're drowning, I will pull you up for air. If you stumble, I will steady you. If you cannot think or feel or feel anything except for numb, I will be your heartbeat back into life. So much passes for love that is not. Passions of codependency and desperate attempts to be safe, the possessive grasping of insecurity. I don't want a monopoly on your pleasure or your delight. I want you to feel and taste and touch and expand even beyond me. I want you to be free. You do not need to put your faith in me. Be faithless. Don't walk blindly down a dimly lit hall. Let me show you. And I won't say it's magic. It will be so real. My ruthless authenticity is yours. The vaults are open wide. There's nothing left untrue. It's there for you to see. Don't believe me. You don't need to believe in a chair. Just collapse into it. So collapse into me. I will hold you. Electrify me. Burn with me. There is no weakness here in this love. There's no room for it. 
only you and I. My kiss is my vow. Mm. And I sent that to her. And she said, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, well, fuck. <laughs> That's a <laughs> hell of a vow. It was really beautiful. She said, this is the most beautiful love letter I have ever received, read, or experienced. The best part about it is it's not words, which is so beautiful. It is actually real. It is a gift. We live it. It's felt. It's like stepping inside the soul. This is love. How do you contain it, receive it, give it? You spoke more than words. You spoke the most difficult language to translate. Love. Mm. This is the most beautiful thing in the world to me because you embody it. I think that's what's possible. Absolutely. And what a beautiful testament to the growth and the work that you two have put in, in your own relationship and your being able to bring that right to paper is such a gift. And also, you know, I think there's this, what's the word I want to use here? There's this, mm, let me see if I can phrase this, something about poetry that I love and I hate. <laughs> so what I love about poetry is it makes these really painful, incredibly challenging and uh, complex feelings seem so beautiful and so delightful and whimsical. But the reality is, is that this shit is not for the faint of heart. It is challenging. And so it's like the beauty of your words. I want to preserve that. It's so amazing. And I know what it takes, what, what type of warrior it takes to be that level of vulnerable. And it's in these daily small but not insignificant. They're quite significant actions where we choose every moment to open, to open to love, to open to the pain, to open to the part that we don't want to reveal. And I love that you were able to capture that in a, such a beautifully written poem. And I'm constantly practicing this art of opening myself and to, yeah, to be an open-hearted human in this world that wants you to close is an act of bravery. I really believe that. So thank you for being one of the warriors with me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you. You know, I think it's a, it's an army of individuals. If it's not a large army, it's at least mighty. Mm -hmm. I'm always impressed by the people who are a part of it. Yeah. I, uh, I had a moment last night, I'm, I'm talking to someone new and there were a series of moments where I was watching myself close. He did something, he had an action that hurt me. And I felt deep sadness in these actions. And there was a bit of judgment because I, I said to myself, like, Bryn, you know better, lean into it, speak into it, share the truth of your heart. And I'm just watching the closure, watching myself like, oop, nope, can't talk about it now. Nope, not the right time. And eventually that, that pain became so great that it was more worth me revealing it to him than it was keeping it inside. I would rather have the pain of rejection than the pain that I was keeping in internally. Mm -hmm. And in the moment I revealed it to him, now this doesn't always happen, right? As we know, he received it so beautifully. 
And I think that that was such a, a rewiring of my nervous system of, Ooh, I can share my pain and he can hold it. And he's mm. going to take ownership and he's going to say, yes, give me more, right? It's, it's in those tiny decisions that we begin to understand what it means to open to love and allow ourselves to be fully met by another person. And then on the other side of it, we had developed deeper intimacy. We felt more of that polarity again. I was wildly attracted to him and was so excited about what was to come next. But had I kept that resentment in, none of that would have been possible. And it would have bottled up and eventually exploded as it always does. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just, I share that in for our listeners to know, cause you said something like there's no path to it. It's just doing it. Like it's, right. it is, it's an acceptance of this is what it takes to have the love that I think every single one of us craves. It's in those every tiny moments throughout our daily life. And it's never too late to press pause and to lean into it. Yeah. And of course, I mean, as you so beautifully said, poetically, I might even say, uh, the, the reality is you can get rejected, right? I mean, anytime we fall in love, provided it's real love and not just sentimentality or using someone, we immediately step into having our hearts broken wide open. Mm. I mean, it's just like, I've got four kids and, you know, when you have a child, when a child enters our life, we find our hearts are not only taken hostage, but are cracked wide open. And almost at any moment we're living fully and deeply, there is that break. And if we hold ourselves back from it, um, we have forgotten that this is precisely the pathway for opening mm. or receiving, forgiving. And so I think that's, you know, the risk of heartbreak is a necessary risk because it also indicates that we're being fully alive. You know, I remember one time I, I traveled um, to, to see a woman I love across the country. And, um, you know, it was unasked for. It was one of those beautiful, hopeless, grand gestures. And I'm sitting there in the airport uh, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And she didn't come. Mm. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I think rather glibly across the country for someone and they don't cross the street for you. Um, but I don't regret that at all because that was the measure of love. And that was the relentless dedication to having my heart broken by beauty. Mm. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's what we need to do. Right. Now, I'm also really glad that she didn't cross the street, actually. Uh, and, and I couldn't have seen that in that moment. I wouldn't mm -hmm. have seen that. But mm -hmm. today I go, oh, wow. Thank God for unanswered prayers. You know? mm. <laughs> yep. Been there. Like, oh, thank goodness you didn't give me the thing that I so desperately wanted. Uh, and yeah, to live with an open heart, I really agree is it's not from a place of manipulation. It's not from, I do this for you. So you give me this in return. It is just so that we can express what we're feeling and express our love. And if it happens to allow us to be met, amazing. And if not, we survive and we move on. Um, but the gift is in the giving of it itself. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about in relation to other and 
I love there's a specific part of your work where you talk about what it what it means to be alone and and how it is such an important part of of being able to fully step into love. And the quote that you named was only a love that can be by itself is worthy of being with someone else. Mm. And that pinged me for sure, because there was a time that I would not at all have been able to really embody that. Um, Because as many of us do, we fall into codependency. It's how I was programmed, right? Societally in my uh, parental upbringing, I learned that I was not worthy if I wasn't with a man and that to be without a man was to be in a world of suffering, lack of financial stability, um, lack of value in what I bring to this world. So of course I found codependency and my journey post-divorce was who am I as my own sovereign being? And can I really be with myself? So I'd love to hear uh, what is the part of a person that needs to find that healing, right? Because we know we don't need to be fully healed to find love. In fact, I don't believe that. I don't think that's ever a thing we can uh, fully accomplish anyway. It's a myth, a finish line we'll never get to, right? But what is the part of them that they get to really sit with and face in terms of learning how to be alone? What does that look like? That's so great. Um, you know, I think just an observation about culture. I, I think that uh, I rather glibly say, you know, since the death of God, um, one of the things that has taken the place of religion in our culture, because we do live in a post-religious society, um, is romance. And romance, of course, is the religion that most people are fixated on and focused on. If you aren't adequate to romance, if you are either anxious and always grasping for it and therefore pushing it away, or if you're avoidant and running from it constantly, whatever your insecure attachment is, well, that's your sin that you must repent for and go (laughs) and see the priest or the therapist who Mm. will help lead you into all truth so that you can go and enter heaven one day, which is a a successful partnership. Um, This is really hogwash right? We have made an idol out of romantic love, which oddly is a relatively new invention on the face of our planet. Now, I say that having said all of these wonderful things about romance and love, and I believe them, but I also understand that it it exists today as a real novelty. We are the first culture that has widespread focus on romantic love as an option for people. For one thing, we're the first culture that has ever had the privilege to develop long periods of time of having autonomous selves that can choose to be in partnership with others. Most often, it was someone who was promised to someone else to get some cattle or or have some, right? I mean, like these were possessional materialistic concerns. Marriage was no different. If you had a romance, it was either a massive distraction from the marriage you were supposed to be in, or it was seen as a danger that you should avoid because it's going to kill everyone. I mean, there's a reason why almost all of Shakespeare's romances were tragedies. He was trying to tell people something, avoid it at all costs. And so I think that we have to be a little honest about love, that love and romance and being in relationship is kind of the ubiquitous cultural sign that we've developed that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Hey, I, and so it's like, 
well, my heart's breaking. I'm really hurting. I I'm in pain. I don't know who I am. I'm, I, you know, it's like, I'm spending all my afternoons at the bar, but I just met this girl. Oh man. I got to tell you, I feel like I'm wanting to be a better man. Suddenly I hear this story so much and not just from men. I hear it from women too. You know, it's like, Oh, and then he walked into my life and I just feel a new, right. You get the idea. I think we've all kind of heard it. Probably have even said it. I know I have. It is easier to signal health by going straight to the punchline and avoiding the middleman of being comfortable with your aloneness. And that's really what I'm talking about. Um, You know, I think intimacy addiction does not just belong to a set class of low life slumps, right? Like intimacy addiction belongs to us all. Society paints intimacy in such a way where we have become addicted to it. Now, what does aloneness do? Well, being at home with yourself, whether in relationship or out, and that's what aloneness really is, allows you the ability to determine your own Mm self-worth. You inhabit that place as a solitary being. I am enough. I am adequate to the life that I live. My worth is my own. And it immunizes us from those diseases, I think, of ravenousness and consumerism and blame and regret. I think you see someone who's comfortable with aloneness when you see someone who's comfortable with quiet. Mm. You don't always have to have the noise and the music and the, and the three TVs going and the internet and reading a book at the same time. Right. Which, by the way, I'm just describing parts of my life in mass. You know, it's like I've been watching a TV and reading a book and having my AirPods in and listening to a message from a friend all at once. That's someone who can't actually be alone. Mm. Right. Seeking, grasping, always needing the next. It's a crowded house. Mm. It's the next thing, always wanting more and more and more. So come back to aloneness. Find that inner voice, that inner place of solitude in yourself. Now, here's why that's a great thing for anyone who's thinking you may want to be in a relationship. Because if you don't inhabit that place, you're putting extraordinary pressure on the next person you meet. It's like, hey, um, want add, need position filled immediately. Basically, all you need to do is be breathing at this point. Right? You kind of get that idea. I remember meeting a, 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 a woman who we were engaging, we were talking, uh, had a really nice set of drinks at the bar the night before. And the next morning I get a text said, what are your intentions with me? It was like, oh my God, the need was so high, right? She needed something from me. She needed something from me so much that it wasn't about me at all. And I understood Mm -hmm. it. It wasn't Mm -hmm. about me. Mm -hmm. I was just a stand-in. I was a cardboard cutout for whoever would fill that void. Mm of the inability to be alone. Mm. I think reality is there's a cacophony of silence that we fear. We fear the silence. And so we often put people as placekeepers in our life to avoid having to confront that sense of self. And so I encourage people often who have gone through a breakup to, um, to actually take a number of months off from the, op, from, from the people that they're in pursuit of, um, just as a way of cleansing out the wound, mm. beginning to listen to your own inner voice, 
a lot of times people come back and they say, well, that's precisely what I don't want to do. I've been alone in my marriage for 27 years. I don't want to be alone. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's different. That's loneliness. I'm talking about aloneness. And aloneness is ability to find your inner voice and to practice that sense mm. of solitary beingness where I am enough. Yes, 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 yes. I, uh, I remember the moment in which I, I was in the forest with my ex-husband. We were very much together at the time. It was the eve of my 30th birthday. We had just done a psilocybin journey together. And I was staring into the pit of the fire. And I knew the thing that my soul craved the most was to learn how to be alone. Like mm. at a cellular level, I knew this was the next progression for me because I had never been alone. I didn't know what it means to be fully alone. I had experienced loneliness in my marriage, but I had never just sat with myself at that level. And for me, that meant a full disentanglement. I needed him to be away. I couldn't, I didn't have the inner strength at the time to have him nearby and still be able to cultivate that aloneness and that inner voice. And so for me, it was, I need you to go away. Mm. And so I drove myself to Austin and approximately three months later, later, we went into a national shutdown where, what do you think I got to do for the next year? Got to be alone. And it was one of the most haunting yet magical and profound periods of growth in my life. Because for the first time, I was quiet enough to hear everything, to hear my truth, to hear my wisdom, to hear my, my heart, right? Like what I really wanted in this life, but I couldn't feel it when I was with this person. And so I love the way that you painted that of just how important to really understand what it means to be alone. And we can start to cultivate this again. And um, you don't have to go to the extremes that I did, but it's in our everyday decisions to turn the noise off, to sit with yourself. It can be for 10 minutes at a time, right? Building that capacity to be alone. Um, I also had a really severe case of COVID where I was isolated and just with myself and my thoughts for almost several months, it was almost two months that I was completely in isolation. And it was again, another layer of that, of what is it like when everything around you is turned off, you can't physically be with another human, any sort of stimulation was too much for my nervous system. So it was, I was a prisoner inside of my own body and mind for months. And, but what the gift that it gave me was, I know I can be with myself through anything at any level. And because of that experience, I will be a better lover, a better wife, a better partner, a better friend, because I know how to be with myself. So I'm so grateful for you sharing that. And, you know, I, I love that you brought out, you know, you, you don't have to go off into the desert and become a monastic in order <laughs> to practice this. The truth is that I had not been alone since I was 17 years old relationally. And when my life went through a tremendous amount of turmoil, one of the things I realized was I needed to begin to practice that. So I got rid of my smartphone. I went down to a clunky flip phone uh, and I actually even changed my number. So I wasn't getting a lot of calls. 
Um, I didn't even listen to podcasts really. Just if I was listening to something, it was the radio. I went, I took a blue collar job. This is after years of having had my master's degree and lived in a professional environment. The truth is I begin to find ways to actually just be with myself, to move my body. Uh, it was wonderful also to step away from, at least sometimes what I tell people is step away from that energy or that archetype that you're pursuing. I had been in pursuit of the feminine so often for so long that I had developed a very toxic relationship with it. And so there was a significant period of time where outside of my, my mother, my sister, my wife, my daughter, I just wasn't relating to the feminine as much as possible. It was a very decided thing. It wasn't an avoidance. It wasn't a, a rejection. It was a necessary quarantine mm. where I began to find access to my own inner feminine, right? To those places that I had self-cut away and self-rejected so that I could better relate to those outside of me. And so again, that's another dynamic, another tool to begin to practice, whether it's aloneness, but also out of that relating well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm, yeah, this concept of detoxes. And I think it's really powerful. I was researching a couple of days ago. Um, are you familiar with Vipassana? The 10 oh, day, yes. yeah, the mm -hmm. silent meditation. Um, I will intentionally be putting myself in complete silence for a 10 day period. And I've heard it is one of the most uncomfortable human experiences on this planet. Um, so I look forward to having something to share on the other side of that, about what being with my aloneness really looks like, but yeah. When, when I was 21, I had a, a dear mentor at the time say, um, let's go to this 10 day retreat. And I said, okay. And thus began my, my exposure to the 10 day silent retreat. Oh no. At, at 21, I was profoundly unprepared for it. But <laughs> I did discover something uh, deeply inward. I tell you, I had a recent experience where I, I, together with a friend, we went into the very, very remote regions of a, of a desert. Um, and this particular desert is so far off the grid. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like it. Um, and in this place, there was no sound. The actual, the desert floor itself absorbed all of the sound. So you could stand about 10 feet from someone and yell at them and they wouldn't hear you. Wow. Um, the ground would absorb the birds. A bird would have to pass very, very near you. And there were a few birds, but for you to hear them at all. So that almost every sound that you heard, it became very precise, very specific. And in the absence of those sounds, I'll tell you, it was very strange. There was no unnatural or even natural noise. And I began to hear the sound in my own mind. I, I cannot describe to you that experience other than it was an absolute overwhelming cacophony of sound. It was like all of the brass instruments in a fifth grade band playing at once. I had no clue the noise that was simply trapped in my own mind. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's really the gift of those kind of spaces, um, whether it's a retreat or simply going into a place of deep solitude, you can begin to actually hear. Mm. Oh, yes. I 
I know exactly what you're talking about because I've had those experiences. And I remember a profound one in a plant medicine ceremony where it felt as if the volume of my own thoughts and the thoughts of everyone around me were turned up to 100 and it was deafening. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I have to escape this. It was so loud. And of course, the lesson was the moment that I just surrendered and allowed it all to amplify, it continuously um, allowed me to, to surrender, to feel what was there and to really have the opportunity to um, practice acceptance. And it was in that acceptance of all of the noise that the noise dissipated. And I remember crying tears of gratitude when I realized, because just as I think so much and so often those noises are running so often that we don't even realize they're there. And the same thought was, I didn't even realize when the silence had occurred, it just like sort of came in like a fog. And all of a sudden I realized nothing was playing and I just started to sob. I'm like, oh, this is what peace feels like. True internal peace. Thank God, uh, because it was a really intense journey. So yeah, thank you. So this has been such a juicy conversation. I, if I were a listener, I'd probably have a notepad and be jotting things down furiously and figuring out all of the ways to integrate them in my life. There's just so much goodness that you gave our listeners today. And I'd love to leave you with an opportunity of if there was one last thing that you would like to bestow upon our listeners that you feel is really important to share with them, what would that be and what is on your heart? Uh, I think uh, the thing that immediately occurs to me is to inhabit yourself. Wherever you are, however you are in this moment, maybe you're three feet ahead (laughs) thinking about what's next. Maybe you're three feet behind thinking about what just was. Bring yourself into your own skin. Feel yourself as a body. Feel yourself as a body moving through space. Touch your sense of sight, your sense of sound. Don't withhold yourself from the physicality, the goodness of this moment. And begin to touch all that is from that place. Don't move on until you've found it. Don't move on to the next thing. Stay with the event horizon. There's so much joy possible in the present moment if we just rivet ourselves to it. Whether in sex or in intimacy, profound intimacy, love, relationships, all of those things, find your center. Find the center and live out of that. So good. Yes, I find that. 99% of my coaching is helping clients to do just that. (laughs) So thank you for that gem. Thank you for all of the gems today. And I'd love to give you some space to talk about your work, where people can find you um, and how they can uh, be a part of your world. Mm. Well, I like to think of myself increasingly as a modern columnist. And by that, I mean that you can find my work 
almost every day on Instagram writing essays and columns about the things that strike my fancy day to day, which have everything to do with intimacy and awakening and shadow. Um, I work with a very small number of people. I'm incredibly excited about this coming new year, a, uh, a group program that never seen the light of day before called the training that I'm doing with women and men, um, where we begin to dive deeply into these places of identity and purpose and shadow. Um, and also something that I am so excited about that has everything to do with my connection to you, which is very, very exciting. Um, my partner and I are launching a podcast in the next year. I think it's coming out actually Valentine's Day, 2022. Um, and it is called Love Like Hell. And we explore all things in relationship. And I am so excited to discuss, you know, a lot of what we've talked about as well as just, you know, so much of our own experience and the experience of others that we've had across the years. So these are some of the things I'm most excited about, but find me on Instagram and you can stay up with that register for my newsletter, do whatever you can. We'll stay in touch. Also, I wrote a book. What? I wrote a book. That's so weird to say that happened. Um, as you are, you can find it on Amazon and the books section. Um, they have me buried there and I'm so excited about that. Also 31 meditations on self and other um, and it's really about so many of the things we've talked about too. Mm. Thank you for being such a gift in my life and for the wisdom you just shared with our audience today. I so appreciate you. And it was such an honor to have you on the show today. So thank you so much. <laughs> you were so wonderful. And I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Mm. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe. So you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.